0: first Thessalonians chapter number one today we're going to read a total of six verses we're going to be in first Thessalonians chapter one and then in second Thessalonians first Thessalonians chapter number one if you find it say amen if you didn't it's on the screen in front of you I want you to stand up with me today and let's honor the Lord it's our tradition I mean our traditions can be good things and are intended by God to be good things, and we honor the word of the Lord. There will be six verses, one in 1 Thessalonians and five in 2 Thessalonians. Read it with me here today. And it says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That's a good word, isn't it? Amen. Let's read it one more time. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now let's go to 2 Thessalonians, where this same theme continues. Actually, the book of 2 Thessalonians is the primary theme. It's about half of the theme of 1 Thessalonians. Here, verses 1 through 5, we're going to garnish our attention it says finally brethren pray for us that the word of the lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you that's the preacher's prayer the preacher's prayer request is for you to pray for us pray for us and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith we believe that to be true but the lord is faithful I could just preach that word right there. For the Lord is faithful. He is faithful. Who shall establish you and keep you from evil. You believe that today? I do. I believe God can keep us from evil or even from the evil one. Right? Verse number four. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you or concerning you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. And that's the hope of every leader that God has put in the body of Christ for those that he touches, he or she touches, that their their ministry can influence them to the degree that he said, we have confidence concerning you, that you're going to do the things that, that the Scriptures have exhorted you to do. Amen? And the Lord, look at this fifth verse, direct your hearts into the love of God. And into the patient waiting for Christ. So I think you can kind of tie these together, can't you? From 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter number 1, we're here at that 10th verse. Here he says, uh, again, let me just read it there. He says, we, have, we wait for his son for he- from heaven. The fifth verse here he says of Second Thessalonians, into the patient waiting for Christ. Now you would think that my message would be entitled something like waiting for Christ or the Lord's coming, or something of that nature, but I've chosen to entitle this message a necessary journey. A necessary journey. And so I want to explain that to you here in a moment and ask you to journey with me if you would. Right. Let's ask the Lord to help us here today. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. I appreciate you being out today. Father, I love you and I'm grateful to be here with my church family. I feel privileged to stand on this stage. I I feel honored to have shared this stage with these other men of God that you have placed in my life and to, to know what they have ministered and how they've ministered and in the spirit that they've ministered. And now today, God, I have my opportunity. The baton comes back to me. And I pray, Lord, today that you will give me conviction and you will share with me the things that I believe that you have dropped into my heart to share. And I pray that the people's hearts would be prepared, be prepared to receive the engrafted word, to receive this word, to journey alongside of me. I don't want to run alone. I don't want to take this, this very treacherous journey all alone. I pray that there are others that align themselves with me as I take this journey. It's in Jesus name and all God's children said, amen and amen. Thank you so much for your honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now, in this particular two texts of Scripture that I chose, and there's a lot of different verses that I could have chosen, obviously there is a, an emphasis, it seems, on the 10th verse and the 5th verse of these two particular books that speak about what would seem to be the return of Christ. The emphasis here is to wait for His Son from heaven or the patient waiting for Christ. And I, I, wanna, I wanna tell you in just a moment, I wanna ask you to go on this journey with me. And let me tell you how I've arrived at this place where I'm entitling um, this here in just a moment. I'm gonna hold off, I'm gonna share that in just a brief second. This subject of the Lord's return, and, and, and you can add to it the Lord's return or end times, uh, you know, eschatology simply means the study of end times. Um, it, is, it is a subject that I, I perceive to be often one of the most confusing and divisive doctrines in Scripture. The body finds itself and we get agitated when somebody doesn't think exactly the way that we think about these issues. And, but I don't, I don't feel that when I read Paul's writing here. I see Paul leaving us a promise of a comfort because the world is evil, right? And, 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 I, and we believe with all of our hearts that there is going to be a day, as the old song says, of reckoning. There's going to be a day uh, of culmination where, where, where God consummates the ages in Christ. That, that's a belief and a hope that we have. But how all that's going to unfold is the source of much debate And much subject, or or, or much contention at times. And so you've got the end times, but you also have the book of Revelation. You have also other apocalyptic writings that sometimes they arouse much intrigue. But they can, if if, if it's misconstrued, it can also create fear. But when I read Paul's writing, I didn't see Paul trying to put fear into us. I see Paul giving us hope, promise. We've been delivered from, come on somebody, the wrath to come. But I see in the body, though, I see something that happens in the body that differs from the promise that I see in the Word of God. And so the journey, the reason why I said this, a necessary journey, is I'm taking this from, is it J.R. Tolkien's writing on The Hobbit? The very first one that is an unexpected journey, well, I'm asking you to go with me on a necessary journey. It's a journey that I feel like that I need to take. Let me tell you how I arrived at this place. I arrive at this place because there are times I feel like, I know I'm not, but I feel like I may be the only Pentecostal preacher without an end times message. Sometimes I feel that way because I don't seize cultural issues and make reference to Armageddon. I just For whatever reason, my spirit just doesn't, I'm not trying to be critical of others who do. I'm just simply saying, but, but in doing so, I find myself, I almost feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, out there on an island all alone. And, and I want you to know this, it's not from a lack of personal study. I'm not a theologian on these subjects, but I'm not ignorant either. And I've given much study over 30 years of uh, my, my pastoral ministry on the study of eschatology. I've given a lot of contemplation on it. And uh, but, but here's the issue. Sometimes my personal study leans me towards doctrinal conclusions that differ from most within the Pentecostal movement. And that's when you find yourself out there on a limb by yourself at times. That's why I find myself being quiet about those things because I don't want to be a source of confusion. And I don't want to be a place of contention. And I don't want to do or say anything that could harm someone that, held, that holds to a deep-seated principle. But it was on Sunday... This past Sunday, while you were gathered here in the sanctuary of First Assembly, and I don't, our time was off, you know, we were in mountain time, and so either it was before the service or after the service that I took my Bible. I think it was after our worship service here. I took my Bible and a notepad, and, uh, and I went up on the mountain. Not like Moses, it wasn't Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, but it was the mountain that was right behind the small condo that Sherry and I and our two children, adult children were staying in. And, uh, and I got to be able to be alone. And while there, I was praying. And I, I didn't go to Colorado to, uh, to, to fast and pray. I went to be on vacation. I think that's all right, don't you? Yes, I gained weight while I was in Colorado. I'll work on that this next week. So I didn't go out there, and I wasn't fasting and praying and that kind of thing. And, and so we were enjoying time as a family. We are enjoying a time of rest. But still, in my heart there was still a part of me that wanted to have a moment where I felt like God met with me. A moment where almost like Jace taught us on Wednesday night where you get a deposit in your spirit. Because if you're before you prophesy something that comes out, something's got to be put in. All right now. And so while I was on the mountain and, and just in that moment, I didn't go there thinking about eschatology. I didn't go there thinking about anything. But when I sat down there, on the mountain, I just was, again, reminded of the fact that I'm the Pentecostal pastor without an end times message. And I have an end times message, but it differs from the more commonly held view. And, and I find myself struggling. And so after pondering and praying while I was on that mountain, I've decided to begin a necessary journey. A journey that is uh, that I want to share with you, my church family. And that, that that's going to, to reveal some of the thoughts that I have related to this subject or these subjects because it's not just one i mean certainly there's a connotation a greater connotation there's a lot of variables within it and to search for greater clarity in myself to pray for greater conviction come on somebody are you out there but also greater understanding perhaps i need to change my perspective but perhaps we need to change our perspective who knows? praying our hearts are directed at the culmination, what I believe at the culmination of any study of eschatology, it ought to direct your hearts to the patient waiting for Christ. It, not, it shouldn't move you to fear. It shouldn't move you to contention. It should move you to a place where you're at peace with God and you're simply occupying till He comes. If I had taken those students into this subject in the class, the ones that told me that they're working and, they're, and, and they've got aspirations and they've got dreams, and then you could fold in in time uh, theology and, and about that, that Christ could come. I believe in the imminent return of Christ. I do. I believe that any moment, any time, I don't believe that we have to have any other thing before Christ comes. I do believe that with all of my heart. But at the same time, my responsibility is to not stand and stare. My responsibility is not to sit and read about all the things that are happening all over the world. I'm simply exhorted by the Word of God to occupy till He comes. That means if I'm a student, then be the best student I should be. Right? If I'm in the workforce, then work. Right? Work and hedge up my garden. Come on, somebody. And so, so, so where I'm at is it's a necessary journey, but I have to, there's certain risks for me. Because there's certain risks of isolation within the Pentecostal fellowship that I'm a part of. And if I arrive conclusively, and typically I haven't taught some of these variables conclusively, I typically have just shared them just bits and pieces here and there, and this is going to be folded out in a much more in-depth process, I have certain risks because I could actually arrive at a place where it could bring me to a place where the Assemblies of God Fellowship would choose to no longer allow me To carry an ordination within the fellowship so just like bilbo baggins when he took his staff and headed out with gandalf and the dwarfs it was a dangerous journey now obviously i'm not calling you wizards or dwarves, but i am saying that it was a dangerous there wasn't that there was risk there's risk there is risk but i have weighed that in the balance and i've arrived at the place in my life where i said it's a necessary journey I have to do this. I have to release the conviction that's inside of me. I believe that the Lord impressed upon me to teach concerning eschatology with four principles at the core. I'm going to give those to you today. Four principles. Number one is educational. It's very important. Many have eschatological views or thoughts within the body of Christ that they cannot defend in Scripture. There are people under the sound of my voice, and this is not to throw a stone at you, but that you believe that you are living in the, 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 the last days before the imminent return of Christ or many that hold to the doctrine of the rapture, a seven-year tribulation period. But you can't take anybody anywhere in Scripture to where that's at. And, and, and so we've got to challenge that part of ourselves. Many in the Pentecostal movement are unaware. This is one thing that I learned by accident. I learned this by accident, that many in the Pentecostal movement are unaware of other doctrines that are held by many godly men and women that are leaders within the generation of the body of Christ which we live in. They hold different eschatological viewpoints than what's been primarily taught within the confines of the Pentecostal movement. As a matter of fact, that was a part of the journey that I've made over the last 30 years of uh or 25 years almost of pastoring when i almost became shocked when i realized that there were other interpretations than that which what had been shared with me because nobody had ever shared with me that there are other people that view this exact passage differently see i can't i can't do that i can't look those young adults that were in the class with me this younger generation i believe that they deserve more than just one angle one slant one possibility because here's what I believe. If your doctrine is true, it should withstand scrutiny. You should be unashamed of it. If, if it's true, you should, uh, it should withstand comparison and contrast. And, and, and unless somebody is teaching just outright heresy, unless somebody is just teaching things that we know that there's no biblical possibility that that could be true, then it shouldn't divide us as a fellowship. It shouldn't divide you as fellowship with other believers. It should actually, we should still be able to agree to disagree. That's just me. Here's my personal conviction I honestly believe that our template for Bible prophecy is off course. This is me. I believe that you can be accurate in your use of a template, but if it's off course, you're going to arrive at the wrong destination. If I tell you to go to the second street and turn right, and go down four streets and turn left, and then go three miles and then turn left, you'll be at Walmart. That might work if you're in Heber Springs, but if I, if, if, if I was intended for you to be in Conway, you may end up in jail. Let me give you an example of why, how, how I'm going to show you that I believe that sometimes something can be in the body of our teaching that can cause us to be off course. Now, if you don't read the authorized version, shame on you, but if you don't read the authorized version of the King James Version of the Bible, you probably won't, you won't understand this. But for those of you that historically were brought up with the King James Version, 2 Timothy 2.15 is a verse of Scripture that we've all pondered on. 2 Timothy 2.15, let's put it on the screen if we would just real quickly. It says, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How many of you know study is very important? right? How many know reading and contemplating and meditating, right? And so when I read this, I can emphasize studying the Word is the necessary emphasis that's made by Paul. Would you agree? Would you agree? All right, that's fair, but you're wrong. (laughs) I didn't catch many of you, but I caught some of you in a trap. The reason why some of you weren't caught in that trap is probably because you have another translation in that translates that differently that's not the correct listen that's not the correct application of this verse and the reason why is is that the original word in the greek when translated to study in the 1611 edition of the king james version of the bible the word study in that generation 400 years ago meant differently than it does today Study for us today is what those students that I talked to in my class today are doing. They're about to go into, uh, they're about to go into college or some of them are in college, and they've got books, and they're reading, and they're pondering. and they've got to read, and they've got, they get assigned chapters, and they, get, they have to read several books to affirm, to learn the things. And so that's how we think when we read study. But the particular word study here in the Greek is spadaudzo, spaudaudzo, I can't pronounce it in Greek. It simply means endeavor. Or make every effort or be prompt. The New King James Version would say be diligent. Or so I, I kind of paraphrase it this way determine or endeavor to make every effort to show yourself approved unto God. Now, you and I can agree that studying is an important part of that, correct? Are you hearing me today? How I many know oh, studying is a good thing? Studying the Word of God is a good thing. Rightly dividing in this text is more about teaching than studying. Rightly dividing in the original language means make sure it's in line. Make sure it's true. Make sure it's not gravitating, pulling right or left. Making sure it's accurate. So actually what Paul is referring to in the text, he's emphasizing Timothy teaching the word more than studying the word. But did you know I could take you to a church here in Arkansas that that on the side of their building over there, educational wing where they have sunday school they've got this verse of scripture right there in large letters study to show in the king james study to show thyself approved unto god right there as if their classes are affirming what paul is exhorting but what we've done is listen very very carefully is is that what we're doing is if we had studied we would not have used this verse to affirm our effort because we've trained ourselves and even affirmed ourselves, while at the same time we've failed in the thing that we hope to affirm. We've affirmed ourselves as saying, I'm going to study to show myself approved unto God. I'm going to read the Word and meditate on the Word and get the Word in my heart. I'm going to show myself approved unto God. But in doing so, we didn't study to arrive at that conclusion because Paul wasn't telling Timothy, make sure you got your parchments, make sure you've got the books, make sure you've got the letters, make sure you've got the the, uh, the prophet's writings and the teaching's writings, and make sure you spend at least six hours a day studying the Word so that when you do teach on Sabbath or to teach on the, the Lord's Day that you're adequately prepared. No, he does, that's not, he's just saying, make sure, make sure, determine, do every effort. So what I'm saying is we can arrive at a conclusion, but did we arrive at the conclusion that was in the intent of the author? That's a fair question, isn't it, to people who aren't shouting me down today. Eschatology has many other conclusions than the one that most of us are familiar with. I think that we should educate ourselves and not be afraid of it. Number two, historical. Historical is the tool that we must use. So doctrinal positions and conclusions have to be examined in the historical context. When a doctrine emerged in the body of Christ, what was going on with it? Let me give you a couple of examples just real quickly if I can. When a do- you have to put them in their co- in their context and i can 't I can't go into all depth of this today, but i w- I will begin you, you, to a degree you have to know the history because it arrived at conclusion because often what was going around the people at the time that they arrived at the con- at the doctrine dictated their convictions. Can I give you an example of this just very quickly so when we get into this study just a little bit you 'll learn a little bit of the disting- uh, 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 to distinguish between um, some of the, the, the eschatological viewpoints. And, and so let, let me give you an example of a couple of those, if the best I can. Dispensationalism is one. That's where most of the assemblies of God and most of the Pentecostal fellowships find themselves. That's the camp. But, but the dispensationalism is uh, one of the newest theological viewpoints. It was almost unheard of in the body of Christ until 1830. And so when as it came about, you have to look at what was going on because dispensationalism begins to teach about let's take the antichrist for just a moment the antichrist of a one world ruler and many times we find ourselves looking to the european commonwealth we start looking are y'all hearing me today y'all are familiar with some of this correct we start looking for a revised roman empire perhaps a business leader that moves into the political arena or something that's something that's taught in much of the eschatological camps within dispensationalism but that's not what martin luther taught Did you all know that? Martin Luther just led the church or was in the process of leading the church out of the dark ages of Roman Catholicism. And he believed the Roman papacy to be the Antichrist. And so the reason why I'm saying that you have to look at the historical context, because we have a tendency to, 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 to believe that we are the ones that are living in the last of the last days, And that the eschatological end is coming upon us in our time. And so Martin Luther, the the one that he could point his finger to, was the Catholic Pope and the history of the Catholic Popes. But then things began to change as dispensationalism began to unfold. And so I want to show you in the historical context is, is how and why and who and where. Can you learn the history of it? And if you learn the history of the doctrine that you hold to, will it affirm its place in your heart and mind? Or will it cause you to question its veracity? I think that's fair, don't you? And again, let me say this. You don't need to be afraid of being educated. Come on, somebody. Number three, practical. Practical. So first we've got education. These are templates. These are means in which we're going to study. These are the things when I come up here every Sunday for the next few weeks, and I'm going to give myself some ebb and flow. I'm going to give myself. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge your response. I'm going to say, God, well, is it too much? If it's too much, I can always move it to Wednesday nights. If I need to call a time out, I can call a time out. I can do that. But I want us to take a necessary. I need to take this journey because I can't be the only Pentecostal pastor in the world without an end-time message. i got to have some measure of an end-time message and a clear conviction. Number three, practical. I believe that all doctrine, all true doctrine, should have a practical application. It needs to alter your life. It needs to empower your walk. Each week, I need to share something with you that's more than education or more than historical, but something that you use to grow in your faith. See, I believe the study of end times should culminate with a desire to walk and to please God. I believe the study of the end times should be a desire in my heart to be pleasing to Him, not trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. That's my conviction. Now, everybody doesn't hold that. And 1 John 2 and 28 is a verse of Scripture. Let's put that on the screen. Let's read it together. This is a Scripture about the coming of the Lord that's in my heart. Now, everybody doesn't hold this as deeply as I do, but this is the, one of my principles. And now, little children, abide in him, not in uh, some darkened uh, figure in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Europe or perhaps in uh, Syria or perhaps in, uh, in, in Israel. No, you can focus on an antichrist all you want to. I want to focus on the Christ. I want to abide in him because that's the one that I'm concerned about. Listen, and so that when he appears... I want to have confidence, and I want you to have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming, right? I want you to so know him and be confident of your faith in Christ. I want you to be directed to the love of God. Come on, somebody. and that So so if I give you a practical truth, it's going to lead you to be drawn to him and be found in him. Because let me tell you right now, I'll tell you who the hero of this story is. Let me tell you who the the who is the the day star. Let me tell you who is he who was from the beginning. Let me tell you who is the Alpha and the Omega. Let me tell you, and it's not uh, any of the kings that have been in Israel to this time. It's not a Roman uh, a pope. Uh, it's not a it's not a Roman king. It's not a, a future uh, you know military leader. No, I'm gonna tell you, Jesus is the star of the story right? He is the one. He is preeminent in all things. He was before all things, uh, and all things consist because of Him. He's the Word that abode with God in the beginning, and that's the one that you want. You want to abide in Him. When I study end times, I don't want it, me to become so enamorated that I'm trying to figure out this and figure out that. I want it to put me in such admiration of His glory, of His goodness, and of His love that I walk before Him in faith so that within the midst of my life of me preaching and teaching and loving and being who God's called me to be, that if he suddenly appears, I'm not ashamed of him at his coming, but I am confident in him and I welcome him as the triumphant king and the conquering king, glory to God. Amen? That's what's in my heart. I know that's not in everyone. and I know that don't sell books because it doesn't create enough hysteria. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Now, Sister Share, I need you to get the, we don't have our car, And so I've got my 2006 truck. It's long, but I do thank you, and it's hard to get into at times. And the seats tore. I get caught on it getting in a little bit at times. So I need you to get it parked right over there and keep that door and keep it running. I don't want you to be ashamed that it's coming. So I've got to share something with you that creates your confidence in him, in him. Number four, spiritual, God breathed producing conviction what's the spirit saying to us what's he saying to us not I didn't say what what the latest prophecy book is saying I said what's the spirit saying to us that's something that's in my heart what's he saying to you what's he saying to me now of the of the positions you know with dispensationalism that I'll talk more about than probably anything in the time ahead that I believe this was manipulated at times and and could be overly emphasized but the the emphasis of pastors at times was on being left before the rapture at the at a rapture and so you know it was like get right or get left or what to do if you miss the rapture and if this happens and all of this and i and i do i do believe that pa- pastors have manipulated that at times but i also believe many of them preached that with the clearest of conviction because they held to it so deeply and believed in it so deeply that god could use it and that people did feel conviction. I want to say this. Whatever conclusion I arrive at personally, or perhaps even you, I want a spiritual conviction. I believe that we need a new stirring in our spirits, a longing for the return of the Lord. That Can we say with John, the revelator, even so, when he saw everything in the Apocalyptic visions that God had given him on the Isle of Patmos, he concluded and he said, Even so, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so I want whatever I share, both for me and for you, to produce godly conviction in our hearts related to his return. I think our generation needs it. Come on, somebody, amen. So with these four principles each week, I'm going to travel along what I'm calling a necessary journey. Are you here? Are you hearing me today? I hope I'm inviting you to go with me. I'm encouraging you in this guard your heart. Don't be so quick to judge or criticize other doctrines or other people who disagree with you. That's for me. You, you may be a critical person. I try not to be. I can't say that I'm not always. Sometimes I am. But I'm trying to guard myself. I don't want to find myself fighting against God. I personally believe the doctrine of Jesus' return is intended to comfort the church, to direct us to the love of God. Come on, somebody. And regardless of what angle you take, the promise is this. He's delivered us from the wrath to come. Man, I felt Jesus right there. Let me say that one time. The promise we read, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, said that he's delivered us from the wrath to come. I thank God today that Jesus absorbed God's wrath on a tree called Calvary, right? I thank God he was beaten and broken and bruised and pierced in his side, his hands upon his brow and in his feet so that you and I could be welcome in God's eternal kingdom. And so no matter which doctrinal position you take, no matter what angle of wrath that you may look at, the scripture promises that we are delivered from that wrath, correct? But let me tell you what delivered from wrath doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're delivered from all trial. It doesn't mean you're delivered from all tribulation. There was a time that we preached the rapture so hard in the United States that we created a mindset in the American church that we would, be, we would avoid all persecution. But now, 50 years later, we're starting to see that's not the case. In this post-Christian society that we live in today, you're starting to suffer persecution. Persecution. Now, it dims in comparison to the Christians in North Korea. It dims in comparison with the Christians in the Sudan. It dims in comparison with churches in communist China, right? But we're starting to feel some of it. And so delivered from wrath doesn't mean that we're delivered from the tribulation of this age or persecution or accusation, but we're delivered from God's wrath, which abides on the unbeliever. Correct? And so I want you to know the Scripture says perilous times can come, and they do come, and they have come, and they will come, right? And I think we need to be able to be like Jesus' apostles in the first century when they were beaten for the very first time before the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. And when they left, all people wondered because they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the holy name that they were preaching. Over the weeks and months ahead, I intend to share multiple eschatological views. Let me give you these before I really make this personal in closing. Differentiating views, and I can't always say them: all millennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. Most of us aren't that familiar with that term because we were brought up in the context of pre, mid, and post tribulation. But what about the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation? Where does that come from? Where do we get the scriptural basis for it? Where, what about Antichrist? What, who is Antichrist? What is Antichrist? What does that mean? What about Israel? Probably hinges upon this. Who is Israel? What about modern Israel? What about the present state of Israel? What about the future Israel? What about all Israel? Or what about the term Paul used, the Israel of God? The Olivet Discourse. To me, is the most displaced theological doctrine. I'm going to share with you some things about that. What about the abomination of desolation mentioned himself by Jesus? What of Revelation or Daniel? Is there a bridge between those two books separated by 600 years? What did the apostles have to say? And when I say apostles, I'm not talking about John in the Revelation Have you ever taken the time to take all the New Testament epistles from Acts begins at Romans at the conclusion of Acts and go all the way through Jude prior to the apocalyptic writing of Revelation and say, but what do these apostles, what does Jude have to say? What does Peter have to say? What does John have to say? Have you ever looked at that apart from the way that we're taught to look at it? You will before we get off of this necessary journey. I have a question for you today. Do you have a blessed hope? I hope you do. The Scripture promises us that with this return is a blessed hope. Here's my fear. I'm afraid that we've become so doctrinally close minded we won't even admit it, even if we found that we were wrong over something. I'm afraid we're there at times. Because let me tell you what the, what, the, what the supposed, I hate to say this, the supposed prophecy teachers do. They just, like, like our American government does with the national debt, they just push the can down the road just a little bit. If you get off in one thing in this one book, you just write another book. Are y'all out there? I know. I know this doesn't sell much books in the foyer at First Assembly, does it? You would be surprised. I'm gonna probably go. T- well, you'll be surprised that when you go back and look at some of the what we call prophecy teachers, experts in biblical prophecies of how many times they had to change their prophetic inclinations when it didn't come to pass the way that they told us it was going to come to pass. I'm going to throw out one at you today. I wasn't going to, but I'm going to. Oh, Lord Jesus, I there. that. Yeah, sure you got the card. Why are you still in here? <laughs> Perry Stone is a, is a familiar one to many of you. Hmm, y'all jumped on that one quickly, didn't you? But you also didn't know, maybe right now, he's gone through a, a sexual abuse of some type of... Uh, he admitted to part of it, not physical, but he admitted to some type of manipulation things like that. But it doesn't hinder book sales. But nonetheless, he wrote, I read a couple of his books. I had somebody ask, the reason why I'm going to call him out is because I had somebody ask me, do you read much of Perry Stone about three weeks ago? And I was kind of asking them a question. And I said, no, not really. I read a little bit in days gone by. And so I, I heard him recently. It was a change. So I heard him about a year ago. He was on set or on site in Israel. And it was maybe even a couple of years ago. It had to be more than a year ago. It was probably just a few years ago. He was on set in Israel with many of his church and many people that would travel with him. And while he was there, he, he looked into the camera and he said, he said, the Lord has shown me that the Antichrist is going to come out of Syria. I mean, he plainly said it. He said the Antichrist is going to come out of Syria. And what you said, Pastor, why would he do that? Well, it's because there was a lot of movement in Syria at the time. There's not as much movement in Syria right now. So I'm not for sure if he would say that same thing, but the reason why it caught my attention is because I had read one of his books that was written around 2008 or 9, I can't remember the name of it, and in this book, he insinuated, he didn't say it, he kept himself from saying it, but he was insinuating that the inauguration of President Obama was the coming of the Antichrist because Obama was inaugurated, does anybody remember when he was inaugurated the very first time? Mile High Stadium in Denver. Now I know people are saying, Pastor, if you'll hurry up, I'll get home and I'll get to watch football. Mile High Stadium is where the Denver Broncos are at. And if you know that what the, the mascot of the Denver Broncos is, what, it's a what? Come, oh, it is what? It's a white horse. And he was insinuating in the book that this charismatic leader standing in the backdrop of the white horse was one of the four horseman mentioned in the apocalyptic writings of John he wouldn't say it but he was insinuating and so now I can look back and say does that mean that Joe Biden was the false prophet if Obama was the beast I'm gonna just say this if that's the best the devil's got to offer we ain't got much to worry about That's funny right there. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what side you angle on right there. No, but I'm just saying, you see what we do? if, we, if we, we just keep twisting it to keep you intrigued so that you'll keep buying the book. And we pull people away from the patient waiting for Christ. The patient waiting for, I don't know when he's coming. I just want to be found in Him. Not found in the Antichrist, not found in the Roman Pope, right? Not found in all the prophecy teachers. I want to be found complete in Jesus. In love with the one that pillowed his head in death for me. So I'm going to show you something here today of an irony that I found in this contemplation. As I close today, and I know y'all are not shouting me down, but maybe it'll get better in the days ahead. I hope it will. And to remember this, I will judge. And remember, I'm the one taking, I'm the one that's taking the precarious journey. Because I'm going to say this respectfully. If I arrived at a place, here's, here's what the Assemblies of God does. The Assemblies of God has a particular theological view related to end times. And it's a little bit broad, but it narrows pretty quickly. And if you, say, if you stay in the safe place, that's a little bit broad, you're okay. But if you start narrowing in certain areas that contradict with the theological positions of the fellowship as a whole, you can be brought into question about whether or not you should have an ordination in the assemblies of God. So I weighed a lot in the balances. But it's a necessary journey. I've got to be at a place where I have a clear conviction, where I'm not hiding behind anything, because so much is said, all the movement around us, and I think there's some things that I can share with you that if I just have a, have a, have a clearest of, uh, conscience to share these things, I think it can help you. I do. I really do. I wouldn't do it. How many of you know that Pastor Brown wouldn't do it if he didn't believe in it? And I believe that. But at the same time, the reason why I have been able to kind of function within the assemblies of God without, is because it says if you, it's only as if you, you can have differing viewpoints, it's if you make issue of those things. If you keep things stirred up, if you keep people, uh, especially if you teach that people are going through the seven-year tribulation period that many ascribe to, and because that has a tendency to create fear and hysteria. Are y'all out there today? So I've always, I've always kept myself. The one thing, I would never tear down a fellowship that I love, right? I wouldn't do that, but at the same time, I want to have the clearest conviction of my personal Theological conclusions, and I have to ask myself: Am I willing to share on a mountain in Colorado? I said, "God, it's time for me to share." So that's where I'm going to take you. But I want to do it very, very respectfully. i always have, and I hope that I always will. I found a great irony on this subject, Joe. I want to share this with you in closing. I think it's really—I don't say it's cool, but it's—it's interesting—and. Uh, a young adult, oddly, oddly, has been on my mind with the class that I was in. Daniel. Now, he's not young by the time part of this book, but the book of Daniel. We well, you know the book of Daniel is very important in eschatological teachings, right? Many, again, as I said, believe that it is a parallel to the book of Revelation, that it's the same, some of the vision. So let me give you just a little bit of the history of Daniel for just a moment, because Daniel should be a hero of every young adult under the sound of my voice. Right, because he was literally stolen from his family, six oh five BC is what the time frame that Nebuchadnezzar had already begun to surround Jerusalem as a result of Jerusalem's apostasy. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. We've or Babylon. Uh, You know, I struggle with Babylon down in JoJo's Rib Shack when we retire from ministry and Babylon. And so, I you know I struggle with that just a little bit. But so you just gotta give me some grace in case I do repeat it. But 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 the, as the king of Babylon, he has come as a as a tool of judgment against apostate Israel, and so they've surrounded the city. And before the city is destroyed in 586 BC, they begin to take certain people captive, and they take a group of young adults. Captive, and they're trained. These young adults are brought into the uh, into the, the king's um, what's the right word? Not courtyard, but the, to the to to the to the men. They're trained. They're really what they become is they become bridges. They become like uh, interpreters. They're they're dealing with the Jews because they're going to bring a lot of Jews back to Babylon, and so as a result, they need people that are vested that can communicate with the Jews, but can also communicate with the. Uh, The Babylonians. And so these four, men, y'all know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel stands out initially, and it's because he chooses not to defile himself with the king's meat. And he says, you know what, did you know that we don't know anything about his family? Did you know it's very possible that Daniel was castrated and became a eunuch in the court of the king of Babylon? Or Babylon, excuse me. And so with that, so we don't really know about that. This history's kind of quiet about it, but it's a possibility. But did you know he was over 80 years of age before he died? And during that time period of over 60 years, God preserved him. God can keep you from evil. I'm telling you, God can protect you. And God kept Daniel even in darkened times. And God gave him five distinct divisions over a 60-year career of serving these kingdoms. Two of which didn't deal prim- primarily with what we would call eschatology, but three possibly do. And it seems as if God gave Daniel insight, a prophetic revelation as to the rise and the fall of, listen, of these empires of, of Babylon, of the Medes and the Persians, of Greece, of Rome, and the fate of the people of ancient Israel. And even you can attach the addendum question is, the question is, even some of his writings, is it yet future? Is the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel future, or is it past? We're going to go into that in the days ahead. It's a very, it's, it's, it's a viable question. But did you know that Daniel's book has proven to have such accurate prophecy that many liberal commentators date it hundreds of years later because they can't believe that he could be that accurate? But see, he's not, here's the the reality is, Daniel's not prophesying, Daniel's seeing a vision. And he's relating the vision that he saw from God. And how many know God knows the end from the beginning? God and God can raise up one king and put down another. And God can move times and seasons for his own glory. And he's given Daniel just a little bit of glimpse and so there's latter three visions are probably the most important and they're the most familiar with us and you, or the latter two, especially, excuse me. And so I'm not going to go into any of those today, but I'm going to show you because he sees a vision. And I want you to see a little bit of part of this. We're going to go to Daniel chapter number eight and we're going to read three verses of scripture and I'm getting ready to close. Are y'all out there today? Y'all with me, right? It's a necessary journey. And, and we're going to, I'll adapt it, and I hope it gets a little bit better as we go. But I think if you'll stay with me, it will encourage you. Because, you know, I can promise you where I'm going to point you, I'm going to point you to Christ, not the Antichrist. Right? I want you to be found in him. But I want you to see something in Daniel chapter number 8, verses 15 through 17. We're going to read this real quickly. And, again, this is, so, again, with these visions, with these visions, God even sends an angel to him. Let's read this. And it came to pass, it's on the screen. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, so he, he, Daniel has seen the vision and, 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 he, and, he, and, he, and he wants to know more about what's the interpretation? Because how many know many of these visions, apocalyptic in nature, have, have many deeper meanings to them? Right? I mean, just like the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, he woke up, he couldn't remember the dream, or what happened, he just knew he was troubled by it. That's how Daniel was brought to fame, because when Daniel prayed, God showed him what the king dreamed and what the dream meant, right? And so now Daniel is is saying, I sought for the meaning. And so look what happened. There stood before me the appearance of a man. That wasn't just any man. It wasn't even a man itself, right? It was an angel. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ula, Uleah, Ula, Ula which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So can you see what's happened? He's seen the vision. He wants to know what does it mean. And so now the Lord has spoken to Gabriel, one of the archangels, correct, to make this man understand the vision. Look at verse 7. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid, and you would be too. So if I want to have anybody interpret, I'll tell you what—that's an awesome thing. That's not a Perry Stone book or a John Hagee book or a Hal Lindsey book. I mean, that's the angel that stands in the presence of God comes to Daniel, and he said, and Daniel said, "I was afraid, and I fell on my face, and you would too, right? If a holy archangel in the presence of Almighty God appeared, you would fall prostrate before him the same as Daniel. And look what the word of the Lord was to Daniel: Understand, O son of man." For at the time of the end shall be the vision. Hmm. We'll try to figure that out in later tape. Not today. But look at. So then. Verses 18 through 25. Gabriel begins to elaborate. To Daniel. What the meaning of the vision was. Here's where I come in. Verse 26. And the vision of the evening. And the morning. And the morning which was told is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, verse 27, fainted. And I was sick, because I failed the class. Because afterward I rose up, I did the king's business, I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So, even after he saw the vision, even after the angel clarified the vision, Daniel walked away and he's like, I'm going to have to join Pastor Brown's pastor's class of, I'm the end-time preacher without an end-time message, because Daniel simply said, "I, I didn't understand it. Let's catch it one more time. Let's go deeper. Chapter 12 comes at the end of the greatest vision, chapter 11. And I want you to read just one verse. And I heard, but I understood not. Now, why am I saying that? And why am I bringing this to a close? Why am I bringing my sermon of a necessary journey to this? It almost seems like, Pastor Brown, where are we going in this? I found irony in the fact that the man whom God visited with both vision and angelic understanding arrived at an honest confession like I gave you today. (laughs) He said, I watched one vision, and then I watched the teaching on the vision from the angel, and he said, I still nobody understood it. And then when he saw the deeper vision of the 11th chapter, let me put it and paraphrase it for you. He said, I heard. Which means I listened, I read, I prayed, I studied to show myself approved. I contemplated, I meditated, I bought the book, the video, I attended the prophecy conference. I got on YouTube, I looked up this prophet, I looked up that prophet. I studied under this camp, I studied under that camp. But honest confession from the prophet who was given the vision... Said, I understood not. Isn't that, do you find irony in that just a little bit? And he's actually trying to say, the, the angel's about to go. And, and, and I could just see Daniel, he's like clinging to the angel. He's holding to him by the wing, I guess, and saying, You can't leave, you got to tell me. And he said, Daniel, he said, It's shut up to the time of the end. Now, the angel did say there will come a time, he said, when the wise will understand. Read it later in the latter part of the 12th chapter. But Daniel was wise. And Daniel had been given the gift of interpreting dreams. And the point I'm making is is that some of these subjects are very complex. And there are hidden mysteries to them. And I think you ought to be able to just say, you know what? I've watched it. I've looked at it from this angle and that angle and bought that book and this book. And I sometimes just arrive where I don't know. I just want to know him. Here's my conclusion. I think we should be careful. What if after honest evaluation... You're less convinced than you were before. (laughs) Because I'm going to be honest, I've been there. I think you have to be careful not to be so close-minded that you can't hear somebody else's interpretation. This revelation given to Daniel still left him without understanding. So what do you do, Pastor Brown? Pastor Brown, what do you do? You wait for his son from heaven. Come on, somebody. You wait for his son from heaven. You get up every day, and you say, today's the day that the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be found glad in it, and I want to live my life, come on, with the confidence that if he were to appear, I would not be ashamed of him at his coming, right? Or not be ashamed at his coming, not ashamed of him. I'd be ashamed of myself. If I wasn't complete in Christ. Are you hearing me today? That passage that's on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10. in the King James. Reads this way. Let's read it as we're getting ready to close. To wait for a son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. Pastor do you believe there's wrath to come? I absolutely do. I believe there will be the consummation of all human history. And that every man will stand before God one day. And he will have to give account of himself before God. I believe. I don't believe that unbelievers will share heaven with believers. I don't believe that. I believe that if you have trodden underfoot the blood of the Son of God, you'll be cast into a lake that burns with fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, even in apocalyptic imagery, separated from the promises of God, separated from the glory of God. That's the wrath to come. But I believe that you and I have been delivered from that wrath by Jesus' atoning blood on the cross. And I marvel at Him who shrouded himself in flesh and blood and died on a cross that he did not deserve to save wretched people that didn't deserve the righteousness that God was going to confer upon us. But he so loved us that he willingly gave his lifeblood so that you could have access to God's eternal presence. And I'm enamorated with him today. Here's what the Amplified Bible reads this passage, or it's the way it's recorded. And to look, to look forward and confidently... For the coming of His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who personally rescues us from the coming wrath. But listen to this. And draws us to Himself and grants us all the privileges and all the rewards of a new life with Him. I believe that eschatology should point us to a deeper communion With God through Christ. And we should know Him more intimately. Even if you can arrive where I've arrived thus far, I heard and I understood not. And I don't arrive conclusively. But one thing I am confident in I'm confident in His return, I'm confident in His eternal kingdom. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. For the eternal life that's granted unto us through Christ. Would you all stand with me today?